I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Coming up today, some icons of electronic pop who are still going strong. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark was the first wave of English electronic bands who brought the sound of Kraftwerk to pop music. They were the counterpoint to punk, and their sound is still being used by bands today. But back in the late 70s, even though they heard synthesizers as the sound of a brave new electronic world, it was kind of disparaged. We sort of bought into this whole idea that, you know, electronic music would be the future and we would slay that rock dragon eventually. And it was quite shocking to us that electronic music wasn't actually the future mm. at the time. That's Annie McCluskey and Paul Humphrey of Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. I talked to them in 2018, and with the release of their new album, Bauhaus Staircase, I thought I'd bring you the complete interview because it was a total gas. But before we get to that, Christmas is coming, and we've got all kinds of gifts for the Echo's lover in your life. We not only have the t-shirt, but lots of other items that have the Echo's logo so you can show the world where the chill resides. There's sweatshirts, hoodies, insulated mugs, and more. Go to echoes.org, click on store, select anything, then hit the new products tab. All kinds of cool stuff there, including a Christmas ornament. Go to echoes.org and select store. I'm Paul Humphreys, and I'm the keyboard player for OMD. And I'm Andy McCluskey, and I am the singer-bass player in OMD. All right. I want to know what the difference is between OMD, who comes back, makes new and creative music, and so many other acts who go away, come back, and are on the nostalgia circuit playing their hits. That is a good and difficult question. Um, I think that what we hope is that what differentiates us is that we have no intention of being a tribute act to ourselves. We decided that if we wanted to continue to be in orchestral manoeuvres in the dark, that we wanted to make new music that was contemporary and relevant, whilst also recognising that probably we won't sell the numbers that we used to, but and people wanted to hear the old stuff, we'll strike a balance. And so far, people like the new stuff as well as the old stuff. Yeah, and we're, we're not sort of one of these bands who are sort of ashamed about our, our, our hits. You know, we do, we, and we do sort of embrace the sort of nostalgia circuit, but, but it's, it's about a balance. We need to feel like we're going forward as well. And since this reincarnation of OMD, we're on our third new studio album as well. So as long as we, we go out and we play, you know, our, our own concerts as well, we don't mind doing the nostalgia as well. Because we're, we're essentially proud of our back catalogue and we love to play them. Yeah, one of the few other guys to do what you're doing, I think, is uh, Gary Newman, who's out there doing new music, has changed his whole approach. You know, he still plays several of the old songs, but, you know, the bulk of his set is, you know, new music. And, of course, he's putting out, you know, new albums of new material. I think it's just extraordinary because so many can't do that. I think it's really a question of, of what you want. And, I mean, you know, if you don't have any new ideas and you don't have the energy or the inclination to write songs, but you still want to play your old ones and people want to see you, that's cool. That's yeah, that's fine. okay too. Yeah. Um, but we, as I say, we want to make new music, and as long as we put energy and effort into it, so it's quality music, then we can still play it with the old stuff, and they all sit together in the same set. 
Yeah, I mean, since we got back together, we've we sort of realised that we we've still got plenty to say in the voice of OMD. So we're just going to keep saying it for as long as we still have ideas. One thing that has not changed from your first album in 1980 is that you guys still exult in the electronicness of your music. You're not trying to sound like an orchestra or a rock band or something else. You really love that electronic sound. Yeah, I think with this, uh, since we got back, I think we've really embraced our roots again. We've kind of really looked back. When we started to make music again, we've kind of looked back to of what influenced us in, in the very early days. And we've gone back to a very electronic sound. I mean, I think as the band sort of progressed throughout the 80s, we started to get a, bit, a little bit more organic. And I'm not quite sure why that was, but we kind of got away from our more sort of hardcore electronic roots, which we've, you know, now returned to, I think. I think we realised as well by analysing some of our early stuff, because we've done a few gigs where we've just specifically played one or two albums. Actually, if you've got a really good idea, you can do it with just a handful of instruments. If you haven't got a great idea, that's when you start padding it out too much, you know? (laughs) You guys started with almost nothing. I mean, you were kind of making your own instruments in the beginning weren't you yeah we were i mean because we're two sort of working class boys and we had absolutely no money but as kids we worshipped craft work and uh and i guess there was part of us that wanted to be craft work but we soon realized that craft work had all this incredible technology because they were fairly wealthy to begin with but we couldn't emulate craft work we had to do our own thing and so we just had a basically a bass guitar an organ a piano we borrowed a synth for quite a lot of the early gigs, we had to borrow a synthesizer. And, and in recordings, I studied electronics. I was That was a hobby of mine. So I used to make these sort of noise machines, and I made like a very early type drum machine and stuff because we couldn't afford to buy the equipment that was around at the time. Well, what was the attraction to Kraftwerk? That was not au courant uh, at the time that you guys kind of started. The late 70s were in England were the punk era, right? Yeah, I think what people need to know is that we actually found our alternative before punk we heard Kraftwerk in 1975 when Autobahn was a hit when I was just 16 and Paul was still 15 and that was when we went oh my gosh there's something alternative it's melodic but it's different this is what we want to do but as Paul said we didn't have access to any of the equipment so we were just round his mum's back room on a Saturday afternoon when she was at work and he was making things or we were borrowing things or we were just just trying to make noises we were pretty abstract and ambient to begin with but it was just what appealed to us in Crawford was that it was different we were already not wanting to repeat what we saw as mid-70s rock and roll cliches. So we'd found electronic music before punk even happened. Uh, What was it that attracted you to that sound? I think that it was different, and we were looking for an alternative to the rock music at the time, and Kraftwerk and a lot of the uh, bands coming out of Germany, uh, Dusseldorf at that time, La Dusseldorf and and Noi and things like that, they were using sounds that you hadn't really ever heard before. I mean, a synthesizer was a new instrument. I mean, now we're used to it in popular music and nothing sounds really that new and radical. But at that time, every sound that came out of a synthesizer was new and exciting. Mm. The other thing as well was actually that we could get away with our complete musical inability. You know, (laughs) we could say, well, you know, we're playing with one finger and one note, but it's meant to sound like that. It's minimal. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) let me ask you a question why Kraftwerk and not say Tangerine Dream good point I actually saw 
Because I'm older than Paul and his mum wouldn't let him out to Liverpool to go to concerts, I went to gigs and had to report back to him. Um, (laughs) I went to see Tangerine Dream playing in Liverpool Cathedral in the summer of 75. And then literally three months later, I saw Kraftwerk playing in Liverpool. And the difference was that... Tangerine Dream seemed to be the past. It was long-haired hippies all sat on the floor with long hair and smoking interesting things. Kraftwerk looked and sounded like the future. It was new instruments, it was new music, and it was guys who were the antithesis of Anglo-American rock and roll. You know, there were no lead guitars, there were no flares, and there was there were suits and ties, but it, it just looked more modern. I thought Tangerine Dream was too hippie. Yeah, it was a bit... Tangerine Dream for me was a bit like sort of prog rock on synthesizers, really. Whereas Kraftwerk had thrown the rule book completely away. <laughs> well, you've been called the future of, of music, or the future of pop is the quote, right? Yeah, yeah that was um, our first proper meeting with uh, Tony Wilson, who uh, we'd met at the Factory Club when we played our second ever concert. And we sent him a tape because he was presenter on a local news program and they sometimes had bands on so we were trying to blag our way on and um, the funny thing was that he didn't particularly like our music but he left the cassette in the car and his wife Lindsay listened to it all week and then said to him that band's great with that electricity song. And he went, oh, really? I'll think about them again. And the next time we met him, yeah, he'd gone from thinking we were a bunch of no-hopers from Liverpool to telling us that we were the future of pop music, <laughs> which we were deeply insulted by. I think we used an F word and said, no, we're experimental. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of electricity, that song was a bit ahead of its time, lyrically speaking, and also a contradiction. What was the contradiction? Yeah. You were talking about electricity and how, you know, it's an, an environmental problem, and yet here you guys were totally plugged in. Mm-hmm. Oh, it seemed to me, yeah. I think many of our songs actually have been essentially expressing the moral dilemma, you know, the, the, a dichotomy of purpose and, and an ambivalence, because we recognise that technology brings many advances, but we also recognise that technology has drawbacks and implications and negative issues as well. And yeah, electricity was um, was us celebrating doing electronic music. At the same time, questioning how electricity was generated and saying it should be more eco-sound and, and we should be looking at renewable energy sources, not petrochemicals and carbon-based and nuclear. So uh, it was me lyrically walking along my type rope, which I continued to do. <laughs> I mean, you have to remember as well, it, we were discussing these subjects in the mid-70s, you know, when no one else was really discussing these things. I mean, to be eco-friendly to the planet is, is highly topical now, but in the mid-70s it really wasn't. It definitely wasn't. Yeah, that's why I said it was a bit ahead of its time in that regard. I talked to one of your contemporaries recently, Thomas Dolby, uh, yeah. and he said that electronic music back in the day was characterized as, quote, music for wimps, unquote. Mm-hmm. I think we used to get yeah. called limey faggot music. That was the... Um... <laughs> we really did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a constant battle using synthesizers for a while because, I mean, there was not a, an acceptance of it as sort of real music. Unless it had a guitar and a drum kit, you know, it, it wasn't considered real music. And 
synthesizer wasn't considered a, a real instrument, you know. They... Not authentically manly and sweaty enough. <laughs> no, exactly, definitely not manly enough. And, of course, these, these synthesizers, they write the song for you, apparently. This is what we were up against at the time. They were saying, oh, these computers, these synthesizers, they write the song for you. You don't even have to do anything. You just push a button and the song is written. And it's like, yeah, we wish. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You guys were doing a lot of experiments early on. I'm talking about pre-recording, from what I understand. I haven't heard any of them, but to hear you talk about them, they sounded like things that were very avant-garde and more Stockhausen, Cage, and Pierre Schaeffer than any kind of even Kraftwerky. Yeah, I mean, we, we do have a history of experimentation, and... Uh, some made it to the album, some didn't. I think our, our, our most experimental record is definitely Dazzle Ships, where it was very stripped-back experimentation to the shock of our fans, I think, mm. as well. After Architecture and Morality, I think, after we did da when we did Dazzle Ships, I think we confused about 90% of our audience, judging by the sales of it. But uh. mm. I think the, the other thing as well is, though, that be because we started out... Essentially, you know, it was an art project. It was two mm. guys who had no aspiration to be popular musicians or to make a living out of it because even our best friends thought what we were doing was terrible and unmusical. And quite frankly, in the early days, a lot of it wasn't terribly conventional, largely because we had a bass guitar and a thing that made noises, which we shoved into an echo machine, and that was all we could do. So it was pretty ambient. But we always kept that sense of, wanting to do something different. I mean, the whole ethos, raison d'etre, was to try not to fall into cliché of pop. And our record label, who signed us, used to say, can you tell us, you know, do you want to be Stockhausen or ABBA? And we were like, well, can't we be both? <laughs> yeah, and, and also, you know, a lot of our hits, they started out as experiments. They just got mm. honed up and honed up. And, you know, the last thing we put on these experiments is usually a melody. We have a sort of a knack of writing catchy melodies between the both of us. so That's a good point, Paul. I mean, yeah. It's true. We start out by trying to inspire ourselves by going down a road we haven't been down before, which is hard to do when you've been mm -hmm. going for almost 40 years. Yeah, we'll start with a weird sound or a mad idea and then see if we can wrestle it into something that actually sounds like music. <laughs> now, in your more recent material, your last three albums that you've done, when I hear slightly wooden voices are those all like text-to-speech uh recordings they're, they're all from the internet there's so many websites now where where you can just type in a piece of text and then you can select the voice you can select the, the pitch of it the speed that it spits out the voices and it's been a great little tool for us to kind of to mm. say things without us actually having to sing them <laughs> now punishment of luxury one thing i've loved about researching this interview is that i had to look up so many things because you guys well, have that's a what lot you get of, when you interview a band that doesn't just write every song going "Ooh, baby i love you you know <laughs> I, I was gonna get to that too <laughs> <laughs> so the punishment of luxury is a painting by giovanni uh sargentini mm -hmm. and i saw that painting and i thought not knowing anything. What a beautiful painting, very poetic and serene, two semi-nude women lounging in the air above a snow-covered landscape. But then I go to discover that there's something uh, darker and deeper behind it. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. They are, in inverted commas, bad mothers who are in purgatory because they wanted something other than, you know, what a woman is supposed to accept. 
which is life in the nursery, the bedroom or the kitchen, which was the Victorian male attitude to women. So, as you can imagine, we don't hold with that. So, yeah, we appropriated the title, but we are at pains to say that not the sentiment of the original painting. (laughs) And I think the original title of the painting was actually Punishment of Lust. That's right, yes. Mm, The squeamish Victorians thought lust was a little bit too heavy for it, but um, which actually allowed us to then to use the title, because if it had just been Punishment of Lust, it wouldn't made sense for the way we viewed it, because our use of the phrase Punishment of Luxury is essentially that... Most people in the Western world are materially better off than ever before, yet are, it would appear, less happy. Why? Because we've had decades of being brainwashed by clever marketing men who appeal to our darkest fears to make us believe that it doesn't matter if you've got food on the table or a roof over your head. Your TV needs to be bigger. The neighbours are talking about your car. Your kids hate you because they haven't got the latest Xbox. You should have no self-respect because you're not buying my product. (laughs) The modern world... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Well, sonically speaking, timbrely speaking, your music is very similar to what you were doing back in the 80s. But the technology has changed radically since then. Oh, so radically, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the technology we're using now is, uh, I mean, we couldn't have dreamed in the sort of late 70s, early 80s to have the equipment we have now. The possibilities that we have now are just truly endless, which can be difficult because, you know, we call it the tyranny of choice. Like every synthesizer has about, you know, 3000 sounds in it now. And so, you know, you can get lost in your possibilities if you're not careful with the technology that's available. So it brings into the equation self-editing. I mean, we have to be good self-editors otherwise you can just disappear with the technology that you have. What's interesting is you're not alone in suggesting that there are similarities. If you actually really analyse it, the drum sound is quite different. It's got a lot more weight in the bottom end and it's drier and tighter. The programming is more sequenced and tighter. It's not all hand-played. The one thing that obviously remains the same is Paul's sense of melody, my voice... And our ability to construct melodic musical things out of disparate Mm. subjects. So I think that there are some key elements that certainly remain the same. But the actual sound, if you specifically analyse it, has changed slightly. But as Paul said, because it's stripped down, there's still that minimal electronic element, which, you know, it's the overriding element of what we do. And to be honest... Since it doesn't appear that Kraftwerk will ever make another record, somebody has to carry the flag for melodic intellectual music. (laughs) I've I've talked to a lot of electronic pop bands and electronic bands, period, and Kraftwerk is always cited. But I don't know if anyone loves them as much as you guys do. Well, I mean, I think... I, I think that, you know, the influence that Kraftwerk have had on popular music is, I think, is greater than the Beatles or anyone. You know, it's permeated. Your listeners are going to like that statement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the ideas behind Kraftwerk have permeated every aspect of popular music, I think. And what are those ideas? Well, I think primarily the, the fact that um, all popular music now is made electronically. Even the bands who are pretending to be rock bands are all recorded digitally, they're all edited digitally, they're all put in time digitally, uh, and most people buy music now if they buy it or they stream it digitally. So they predicted 
40 years ago they predicted the future that is now and in terms of the way that music is created and edited and performed both live and in the studio they were the blueprints and that we all followed yeah you could you could argue that in the 50s and the 60s popular music had a huge uh, indebtedness to american blues which it did but as soon as Kraftwerk came along and electronic music started, particularly when the English bands adopted their blueprint and took electronic pop music into the charts, from then on, through house and techno and most of the modern hip-hop and almost all music now, is more influenced by Kraftwerk than any other one band or artist in history. Wow. Okay. Well, that brings up an interesting point because I, I, I interviewed a lot of uh, electronic bands in the 80s. How I didn't interview you is beyond me, but I guess we just didn't connect. But I interviewed a lot of them and they all thought, and I thought along with them, that what they were doing, this kind of sound, this kind of approach to creating music, that was the future. That was just going to wipe everything away. And then, of course, hair bands and grunge came along. Yeah. And we had that for quite some time. That was shocking. But now, of course. Yes. Was it really? Well, it was, yeah, because, I mean, we sort of bought into this whole idea that, you know, electronic music would be the future and we would slay that rock dragon eventually. But uh, but when we got into the 90s, electronic music wasn't the future anymore. It was looking back to the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. the sort of the rock music, the punk mm-hmm. music. It was all influenced by that. And, and electronic music was consigned to the decade that had just gone. And it was quite shocking to us that electronic music wasn't actually the future mm-hmm. at the time. I think what we didn't realise at the time in the 90s was that we were on the threshold of the postmodern era where there was nowhere new to go. All popular culture, not just music, but architecture, film, fashion, art, was all starting to eat its own history. And it has been like that now for the best part of almost 30 years. And so I don't think we we realised it in the 90s, but now... There is nothing new, therefore there is nothing old. So everything is acceptable. Every style, every genre is allowable as long as it is perceived to have some quality and value. And then if you can still play it, if you have a catalogue and you can still actually match what you used to do, then you're allowed to do it. And so, you know, people talk about, oh, electronic music has come back. It's like, well, yeah, because it was hammered in the 90s as being the most recent decade that was still considered old-fashioned. But now... It's anything is allowed. Everything and anything is allowed. It's, it's, that's the postmodern era, and I don't know where we go from here. Hmm. But the thing is, though, is that electronic music has taken over. It's just different than I think we all envisioned it. I think it's part of the modern era. I mean, there's so many genres, as Andy said, you know, we are in this postmodern era. So any kind of genre is deemed to be good and popular. You just have to kind of, it's just all about the quality of the music in that particular genre. Is it good or bad? But I think electronic music hasn't really taken over. It's just one of many genres of music that's popular. Really, because I think if you look at the charts, almost all those records are, in one way or another, electronic records. Exactly. Well, this is what we're saying. Exactly, but 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 people don't think of them as electronic. They think of us or Kraftwerk or the Pet Shop Boys or Erasure or you know Thomas Dolby or Human League. They think of those bands as electronic because they were from the era when electronic music started to become popular in the charts. But now, yeah, Beyonce, you know, Bruno Mars, 
Rihanna, I mean, are just as electronic as we are, possibly even more so. You know, the only thing now that on a record that is actually recorded with a microphone is the vocal. Almost everything else is... Created in the box. In the box, oh, in the computer. In the computer, yeah. Well, speaking of the vocal, Andy, you've really kept your voice over all these years. Um, yeah, I, I seem to be lucky that... Um, Still on stage, I sing the songs in the original key, which a lot of people at my age don't. I'm fortunate. I, I, I hope it stays that way for, for a while longer yet. I mean, we did have a, a long hiatus from playing live, and Andy sort of went about 10 years without singing live. Maybe that's had an effect, that he didn't spend 10 years trashing his voice on the road and had a good break <laughs> from it, and maybe that helped him save his voice. Because he can no. still sing in the, in the original keys, you know, which is, for a man of his age... Shall I say? <laughs> is uh, is quite rare. Just because I make Maltz older than you. <laughs> For a man of his advanced years. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a few references that I hear in your music. The song Decimal. Mm -hmm. Is that an homage to Einstein on the beach? Uh, yeah, definite <laughs> reference there. One of the few people who've noticed it. Yes, it's true. <laughs> yeah, we admit it. Nothing's made so, in a so vacuum, you know. Of course. No, I think these things are like homages in the true sense of that word. Yeah, I mean, we've um, never hidden our influences so, or, or hidden from talking about them, you know. So minimalism was part of your background in terms of music that inspired you? Yeah, because yeah. we could only play with one finger. It was invariably minimal. <laughs> <laughs> it was down to competence, really, more than anything else. <laughs> but were you interested in the whole repetitive, cyclical nature of that? Yeah, well, that's what we learned from Kraftwerk. I mean, Kraftwerk was all about cyclical uh, rhythms and beats and sequences, and which, you know, led into the trance music and things like that. I mean, but Kraftwerk were doing it first, and we kind of bought into that whole kind of um, sort of rhythmical re repetition. I mean, we like listening to experimental music, and obviously there's still experimental music, but we have a certain age that... You know, people like uh, John Cale and Stockhouse and Steve Reich, people like that, that was influencing the people around us or just before us. And that minimal repetitive stuff was fascinating. We have a dilemma, however, with music that is purely exists for experiment in itself, because by definition, if you're experimenting, you're trying to push the envelope. You're trying to create something that is not normal in inverted commas maybe you're playing around with the instruments maybe playing around with the tuning maybe you know your melody the trick however is that experiment for its own sake is often a blind alley you know i could play you something that's go okay you know uh, let me think of something that hasn't been done before okay backwards whale farts and a dog barking and the sound of somebody pushing a ford thunderbird off the top of a garage onto the concrete floor and we're going to play it all at double speed okay this is a new thing nobody's done it before you hear it yeah do you get it yeah do you want to hear it again no <laughs> You know, that's experimental experiments are only worth it if they end up in something musical beyond just the conceptual elements. That's the way we'd view it. Mm. Well, experimental certainly plays into a lot of your music. I'm thinking of uh, genetic engineering, for instance, on, on Dazzle Ships. Yeah, we experimented yeah. ourselves right out of the chart with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't our most <laughs> successful moment, although I do still really like that song, but... 
Going back to genetic engineering, you know, we you have to remember that, as I stated earlier, we, we didn't start with the intention of being a popular music group. We had a hobby doing something a little bit weird that we liked that became a signed band because somebody else saw that quite unconsciously we distilled some of our mad ideas down into melodies and lyrics that people might buy and amazingly they did and nobody was more surprised than us but we were doing it on our own terms our first album was all songs that we had written between the ages of 16 and 19 that most of our friends didn't like it went gold the second one had enola gay on it about an airplane that dropped an atom bomb we produced the third one ourselves that changed the sound again with, with choirs and mellotrons and strings and weird ambient sounds. And then, you know, we went and did Dazzle Ships, our fourth album, and we believed that whatever we did, no matter how crazy we were, and amazingly the record company trusted us, whatever we did, people would buy. And we finally walked ourselves to the end of the plank and fell off with Dazzle Ships. We got just a little bit too experimental. We didn't wrap the, the, the conceptual stuff in enough sugar of melody and conventional musical instruments that we went just a bit too far. Um, so, yeah, that was genetic engineering was off that album. Of course, now... Now that album is considered to be our fractured masterpiece and people will pay money to come and see us play it in its entirety at the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, and a lot of bands <laughs> who cite us as an influence cite that album as their most uh, influential record that we made, So, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So getting back to some of your influences, whenever I hear someone saying, ha, 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 in a song, which you do in What Have We Done?, I think they're making an homage to Laurie Anderson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this is what we were saying before, you know, it's, you, you spotted it. We yeah, did it I, in 1981 on the title track of Architecture Morality, actually. We stole that idea a lot earlier uh, than uh, uh, we did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but we love Laurie. Laurie's fantastic. Oh, Superman was a genius song. Yeah, yeah, most of what she does is pretty genius. So the song, Ha Ha Ha, Mindless Repetition and Constant Plagiarism. So are you making a comment on contemporary music? <laughs> we um we sat down to write a song for a b-side and um we just we knew we only had a few hours we thought we'll just got run with this and pull through something up that um sounded like a sort of you know oh it's electronic sequencing oh it's a you know and so and i just said okay this 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 sounds just like the computer is writing the song because it is a, it is a pre-programmed sequencer and all we're doing is hitting one note and it's writing the song for us. So like we were accused of. Yeah, we just started. just as we were accused of in the early days <laughs> when it was all played by hand and the computers didn't write the music. So the reality is, yeah, with garage band and stuff now, you've got things that you know you hit a couple of buttons and with no musical intelligence whatsoever, you can do something that kind of sounds like a song. So you're absolutely right. We were just taking the Mickey out of ourselves and other people's preconceptions. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw you guys back in the day. I saw you at Ripley's in Philadelphia. Oh wow! Which may have been. The first tour. Would that have been the first tour? Uh, yeah, May 1980. 80, yeah. May, June yeah. 1980. Yeah. yeah you were lucky you yep. didn't see us in Boston the next night because we walked off stage after 15 minutes because everything was plugged in the wrong channel. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I remember it sounded really good. I remember you guys been really together. It was a good show. Thank you. Well, thanks. So what does the future sound like? The future will be silent. Is that from something? It was me thinking about... Um, 
we've always used found sounds, you know, music concrete. And I was thinking about, you know, have we exhausted the catalogue? You know, where can we go to actually make something out of a found sound that hasn't been used before by us or other people? And I started thinking about what concrete music is, what found sounds are, and I realised that if they're man-made, they are essentially an audio waste byproduct of something doing another job. You know, a steam train is not designed to go chuff, chuff, chuff. It's just the way it's releasing its leftover steam through the smokestack. You know, its wheels are not supposed to clank. A computer doesn't make a printing noise or whatever. It's just telling you it's still working. All of the concrete music sounds of engines, machines, whatever, they're audio waste products of their inefficiency. So what happens as the future gets more efficient and machines get quieter? The future may become silent. It's like electric cars now. There's only twice in my life I've nearly been run over, and that's been with electric cars because they don't make a sound. You get so used to using your ears to recognise a car coming. Sometimes you walk out into the street, and because you're not hearing a sound, you don't look. And I almost got killed because... Uh, and in fact, there's some, there's some electric cars that are so quiet now, they're actually going to be putting a speaker in to make a car noise because people, cause they could be becoming really dangerous. <laughs> now, Kraftwerk being one of your favorites, they tend towards long songs. I mean, obviously there's Autobahn, which was an entire album side at the time. But even their you know, albums after that, you know, their songs tended to be pretty long. Your songs tend to be on the very short pop single side. But I was listening to where I'm going with this is I was listening to the extended version of Punishment of Luxury. Mm. with all those interpolated sequencer runs. It made me think you guys should be doing some longer tunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do, do you know, we, this actually comes from listening to people who like our music on social media sites. A, the, a lot of people have been saying, please don't farm your singles out for, for multiple remixes, remixes yeah. where people throw away all the original. So why don't you do like you used to do, do your own extended remixes? So we sat down in Paul's studio and we went, OK, let's have some fun for a day or two and let's just play with the backing track ourselves and break it down and dub it and add some new elements. We had so much fun doing oh, it. Oh, we had such we a had blast. A and yeah, you're actually right i feel there may be space for us now to to just loosen off our desire to be absolutely concise and just roll with it do you know what it is is it's because we were never comfortable with being like virtuoso musicians we couldn't jam and now we can jam onto the computer and if it doesn't work we just go back and do it again now we can jam and, and collect the bits we like and put them together so yeah i think you've touched on something that we might look at in the future yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what? It sounded like you were having fun. Yeah, oh, good, because we were. We were having a ball because we, we hadn't done that since the 80s, really, to sort of break down our songs and, and play with them and get a bit more playful with them. So there's one other song. I'm wondering if you're referencing Man Machine. Do you know what song I'm talking about? Or could it be so many, actually? But the, the vocal arrangement on Robot Man reminded me of the vocal arrangement on the Man Machine. Yeah, I mean, it's it stacked vocoded voices using the vocoder to create the harmonies. But it's interesting because a lot of people have latched onto that song because of the vocal sound and also because it has robot in the title. Actually, it's the antithesis of an early Kraftwerk song because it's actually me recognising that I've had therapy and talking about taking my armour off and no longer being the robot man to protect myself. Yeah. Wow. 
That's good. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> huh. Yeah, if you if you now if you now listen to the lyrics again, they'll make a different sense to you. It's about you know I'm yeah. sick and tired of crying, faking, cheating, lying. People only get the message you send. It's actually about taking your armor off. For those who have ever read the book about you know shame and vulnerability by Brene Brown, they'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the lyrics, which, as we alluded to earlier, love songs don't don't make a very high percentage of your lyrics. No, they are in there. You know, we do yes, write about relationships, but it's it's definitely not the constant theme. We will touch on them and, and discuss. I mean, basically, our lyrics are a kind of a discussion with ourselves, really, about what we're going through personally, what's going on in the world. Uh, what we're interested in, what we're reading about, what we've what we've seen, what we've discovered, and all of those things end up in our songs. And love is in there as well, but 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 your lyrics dominant. tend to be very much involved with contemporary culture, and often, not always, often technological culture. Mm. So I'm thinking of a song like Isotype. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, but I mean. I think when we write about uh, technology or contemporary culture or history, we try to write something that that has a lyricism to it and, and, and metaphor so that it's not just sort of clunky and sort of repetitive and just intoning information. Uh, we're trying to make something poetic out of it. But conversely, when we do write about human emotion and feeling, we try to put that into metaphor and different ways of expressing it desperately trying to avoid what we still see as the cliches in a lot of popular lyrics well you're definitely doing that this summer will be the 30th anniversary of the 101 concert which was something of a turning point right that was a show with you depeche mode dolby sold out the rose bowl yeah yeah, that was an incredible show at the Rose Bowl, actually. It's still probably one of my, the favourite shows of all time for me that we played. I just will never forget walking out to 90,000 people at the Rose Bowl. It hadn't gone dark and you could just see 90,000 faces. And there was some sheer terror as well with the four guys in OMD on that night when we walked out because as soon as we walked out on that stage, there was a blip in the power and it wiped all the memory on all of our keyboards. <laughs> right as we walked out on stage and uh and it just left uh andy and mal our drummer to do a dub version of enola gay whilst yeah. the keyboards reloaded their sounds which seemed to take forever drum and bass intro that was not intentional <laughs> but no that, that that tour was a phenomenal tour you know with depeche i mean it was it, it was incredible we were playing massive to massive crowds every night that was our first you know, experience of the big sort of stadium gigs in America. Mm. and um, It's quite interesting, though, because 10 years prior to that, Depeche Mode had heard our first single, Electricity, in a club in South End or Basildon, and they decided they wanted to do electronic music. And we had ended up signing to a major label, and they ended up signing to Daniel Miller's Mute Records label. And... By the time we got to the mid-80s, I think both of us had had as many hits and sold as many records. But what then happened was that because we'd signed a really terrible deal with very bad royalties, despite all the records we sold, we didn't have any money 
whereas they are on a 50-50 profit deal and they were making a fortune. So I think it actually allowed them less pressure and intensity and they weren't forced back into the studio to quickly crank out another album because they were constantly broke which we were so i think by the time we got to the end of the 80s their business model when i don't know why they'd adopted it and we'd adopt another one but that on that tour they were earning enough to retire and we were losing five thousand dollars a day <laughs> wow yeah wow that's amazing things are better now i hope Oh, yes. Things are a lot better. Now. Yeah, we're only losing $3,000 a day. <laughs> $2,000 saving. So, so at, at that concert, did you feel like we won? It, it, won in terms of what? The electronic revolution. Um, I, yeah, I mean, what was great about it was that there's so many people wanted to come and see these English bands that were playing electronic music in America. And... Um, it did feel like we'd landed at that mm. point. Only sort of six or seven, eight years prior to that, you know, you wouldn't have heard any of us on mainstream American radio. You know, we would have been on alternative or college radio if we were lucky. Mm -hmm. So what a dramatic transformation. Mm. Do you know what Thomas Dolby's doing now? Earning money from telephone calls, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, that's one thing, right. He's a professor of media arts at the Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore. Yes, that's right. I heard about that. He always did look like a <laughs> He always looked like he wanted to be a professor, yeah, didn't exactly he? exactly he did. And now he's doing what he really wanted. <laughs> well, he, he kind of embraced the boffin thing, right? He totally did. He took it to another level. He's blinded himself <laughs> with science. <laughs> <laughs> so... What about influences on you guys, contemporary influences, techno, dubstep, EDM? We're constantly aware of what's going on around us. And um, I think on the last album, there was electronic movement called glitch music, which definitely influenced the record. It's basically, you, you probably know what glitch music is. It's basically taking sounds that you would normally throw away, uh, like clicks and pops and buzzes and things, things you would try to normally get rid of, but making music out of them. Um, what's his name? Atom TM. TM. Yeah, it was one of the few. I mean, a lot of glitch music is, you know, you don't really want to hear it again. Some of it. I mean, it, it's great for experiments, but it's kind of for experimental sake. But what Atom TM did was was make it more musical and, and put melodies on it and stuff. Another German artist that was influenced us, and uh, and and so we kind of brought some of those ideas into the into the last album, really. We do listen to a lot of new music. Uh, we're always interested in trying to find somebody that's got a distinctive and unique way of expressing themselves. But, you know, we have to be careful. We are fortunate that people see us as having a distinctive sound, which is great. We have to walk a bit of a tightrope between being true to what we do, but still open to new things. But, you know, as we all know, there is nothing more humiliating than a grandpa trying to have a red Mohican haircut. It don't work. <laughs> only only certain things you can adopt. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think our biggest influence really these days is ourselves and our history. Mm -hmm. You guys are kind of godfathers of a movement. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's... Probably are. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this October is the 40th anniversary of the first concert we played. We get people telling us that we've influenced younger bands... 
it's strange, isn't it, that in many ways people still often think of electronic music as being alternative, but it's been with us in many different forms now for a very, very long time, as you say, at least three generations. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I keep hearing you making references and make me think you must have listened to Pierre-Henri and Pierre Schaeffer. Nope. No. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what you're well, on they're, about. they're the guys. Uh, you're joking, right? <laughs> Um, no, I mean, we, we, you got to remember, right? We, we were a pair of working class kids with limited hope and limited aspiration and, 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 and limited, uh, influences who just happened to hear Kraftwerk, then start going looking for other German bands. So to be honest, we came in with Kraftwerk and just like people who come in with, some bands who've mentioned us as influencing them, their fans then go, oh, they're talking about so-and-so. So younger younger people discover us because the Killers or the XX or LCD Sound System mention us. So we discover Kraftwerk and we find out through them that they were learning minimal music about Glass and Stockhausen and Cage at the Conservatoire. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how we go backwards. But our our knowledge is only limited to what we accessed when we were kids. Yeah. Hey, you guys are fantastic. Listen, great to talk to you. Thank hey. you for some really, really cool and thought-provoking questions. Yeah, the questions were great. Uh, thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was more than a pleasure talking to you. I feel like I can stop working today. <laughs> yeah. I accomplished something. You've, tell you what, you've done a lot of research there. You've, yeah, you've yeah. earned that one. Put your feet up. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. See ya. Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, Too Much Fun. Their new album is Bauhaus Staircase. I'll have a link for that in the posting for today's podcast. If you want to ensure interviews like this in the Echoes podcast and the Echoes radio show, make a donation to Echoes on our website, echoes.org. Just select the support tab at echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S dot org, O-R-G. You can also advertise in both places, so if you want your music, your art, or your products to reach our audience, Echoes and this is the best place to do it. Just go to echoes.org and hit the support tab. Once again, that's echoes.org. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes Podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.